Happy Father's Day. I realize that applies to only a certain percentage of this congregation, but Happy Father's Day. I do want to give a testimony of the uh, video you saw. The camp last Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, our grandkids came up from Bowie, 11-year-old twins who are discerning. A synonym for that word is critical <laughs> at times, you know. And they had one of the greatest weeks of their lives. They absolutely loved it. And uh, we just want to say thank you to everybody involved, for you teenagers, for you leaders, for Mandy who was in charge, and everybody involved in that. It was really a very profitable time. Thank you for all your efforts. Stella got back with the uh, handwork from Thursday, and she said, I'm framing this. And of course, since they're twins, they can frame thing. And Stella was saying hers looked better than Levi's. And hers needed to be framed, and his didn't. But it was a very successful week. And uh, we praise God for his goodness and for your service. Don't forget the 7th of July. 7th of July, Tim Zimmerman will be here with his uh, brass ensemble. You do not want to miss this. Tim is an out-of-sight trumpet player. And uh, I have known him for 30 years. Just a great guy. Loves the Lord with all his heart. And you will be blessed. So, we are in Haggai. <clears throat> Happy Father's Day. Still up there. I hope that you had a good father. You know, good fathers make an important contribution to our lives. I was blessed with an exceptional father who not only explained to me how to live, but he lived for Jesus Christ and let me watch him do it. He went to be with the Lord 21 years ago, but his guiding hand on my shoulder still remains critical. The importance of fathers and mothers is increasingly critical today because of the changes in our laws that have blurred the definition of family. All of a sudden now, same-sex couples are, are able to marry and call themselves a family. That's a radically different definition. We've seen the enormous difficulties of single-parent families. And now we're watching the promotion of single-parent times two families. What this means to us as fathers is that our roles are increasingly important. We're not only helping our children, our wives, our families, but we're maintaining the definition of family in a generation that's losing it, perhaps even destroying it because they don't see its value. So happy Father's Day, fathers. Last week, we noticed from chapter 1 that some things are more important. This is Haggai, chapter 1. Uh, what page was that on? 
I can't find it, but it's in the Bible. <laughs> From Hag, I think it was 789. Uh, and we can affirm from Haggai last week that families today with father and mother are most important, no matter what kind of difficulties they face. I can hear father saying somewhere, asking somewhere, if my family is so important, then why is God allowing us such enormous difficulties? Why is it so hard? That's where Haggai is today. I think he's in that kind of question, asking those kinds of things. Last week, he acknowledged that his listeners were dedicated, but they were living on an excuse. They were saying it's not the right time to build the Lord's house. But Haggai pointed out that they were living in their own luxury houses. It was time to build their houses. He also pointed out that because they were doing that, their lives were filled with emptiness because of the wrong priority. So he stirred them up to obedience, and three weeks later, the temple was under construction. That was great. That was excellent. The Word of God brought changes. But now, in chapter 2, we have another message. Something has happened in the building process. The new issue comes out in verse 3. left among you who saw this house in its former glory. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Let me divide this message, nine-verse message, into three sections. First of all, we have what is a complaint. And I think the complaint is that our efforts are worthless. Here are the first three verses. In the seventh month, in the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? The people had been working for a little more than three weeks. Haggai's first message was the first day of the sixth month. First day of sixth month. They began working on the 24th day of the sixth month. And we're now talking about the 21st day of the seventh month. Three and a half to four weeks later. What's the problem? Last week we noticed that it seems those priorities... Now, after three weeks of making God's house their priority, it seems that the builders have lost their motivation. Why? Well, the building is nothing. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Nothing as in it doesn't exist. There's no real temple there. We're working on what is basically emptiness. Now, I think it's hard for us Americans to feel the significance of this statement without remembering the spectacular nature of Solomon's temple. And the problem today is trying to calculate how over the top was Solomon's temple. 
Is there any way of measuring how awesome this place was? First of all, I think we ought to answer the question of what's it cost to build a building today? You know, what is the most expensive building built on the face of the earth? So I Googled it. <laughs> and it depends on whether you go to the richest.com or constructionglobal.com or creditloan.com or escapehere.com or wikipedia.org. Some think that the most expensive building is Marina Bay Sands, a casino in Singapore that costs between six and eight billion dollars. If you can see that platform at the top, there is on that a 400-foot infinity pool. I don't know if anyone has ever swum over the edge. <laughs> I would think they'd be afraid to get near the edge. But constructionglobal.com says that Abraj al-Bayt in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, is the most expensive building in the world. This is a hotel. It's right near the mosque in Mecca, where millions of Muslims gather every year for Hajj. Hajj is one of the five pillars of the Muslim faith, and you need to go for Hajj somewhere in your life, sometime in your life, and go to Mecca. And so, for Hajj, they have millions of people that come. Hajj, by the way, this year, starting at, on August 19th, if any of you want to sign up. <laughs> this hotel, this hotel is right next to the mosque. The, the clock on top has four faces. There are four sides, each with a clock, and that clock is 140 feet in diameter. Does that give you a perspective? The top of that tower is 2,000 feet. And that building will hold 100,000 visitors every night. 100,000. And it cost $15 billion. <laughs> so how does that compare with Solomon's temple? I can think of only two ways that we can evaluate Solomon's temple. One is by the, the money that David saved for, for it, and the other is by the sacrifice that Solomon gave. And David says to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 14, that he had a, a little savings account, and he had managed to save 100,000 talents of gold and a million talents of silver over his lifetime. So how much is that worth? And the answer is, we don't know. But if you try to calculate, you know, you just do say calculations like the value of gold on Wednesday was $1,300 per troy ounce, 12 troy ounces in a pound. A talent back in those days, we're told, was between 75 and 125 pounds. So if you multiply 1,300 times 12, and then times 75, and then multiply that by 100,000. 
you will come up to more than $100 billion. $100 billion, not $15 billion, $100 billion. And that's the gold. And David said, now I've got a million talents of silver. I've got bronze, any amount. I've got iron, any amount. I've got wood, any amount. You get the picture? This was an awesome building. An incredible building. Add to that the fact that Haggai spoke on the 21st day of the seventh month. Did you catch that as we were going through? 21st day of the seventh month. You know the significance of that day? That's the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And do you know what? Solomon dedicated his temple on the Feast of Tabernacles 440 years earlier. And how did he dedicate it? Twenty-two thousand oxen, a hundred and twenty thousand sheep in thanksgiving to the Lord. Just think of the logistics of that. How would you sacrifice twenty-two thousand oxen? How many people would it take? Where would you do it? Solomon actually dedicated the area in front of the temple in order to get this done. But that is just completely over the top. You know, we are talking about one unbelievable, perhaps never matched in history, building. So with that in mind, these people are saying, what are we building? You know? They're saying, what are we going to dedicate this thing with? Two lambs and a cow? Uh, this is nothing. Why build this thing? We don't have any gold or silver. In fact, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant. We don't have the holy fire that came down on the te temple when Solomon made his huge offerings. The Shekinah glory that Solomon's temple had. We don't have the Urim and the Thummim. You know Urim and Thummim? You use those words every day in your conversation? Urim and Thummim? Google it someday. It's what the priests wore. Part of the breastplate of the priest. So think about everything that we are missing. And we're going to call this God's temple? That will be nothing but an embarrassment. We're wasting our time. What we are building in reality is nothing. Ever felt that way? Can you relate to that environment? You know, what am I doing? What am I investing my time and energy in? What am I accomplishing here? You know, you're teaching a class of five out-of-control five-year-olds <laughs> who don't listen. What's the value? Sometimes you think you're raising children who God, who God calls my inheritance, but they sure don't look like it. You're in a neighborhood where you shine as a light. Why is it so dark? You want to do something significant, but you don't have anything to do it with. No money, no time, no capability. What's my effort accomplishing? 
we need to realize that the word nothing means nothing to God. People think that God works the way we work. You know, we're impressed with something big. We're looking for something bigger. We're looking for something awesome. We know that God is at work in what is big and glorious. We can see it in the stars, which are endless and glorious and big and hot. We can see it in the ministry of Billy Graham. We can see it in, in some mega churches. And we know that God is blessed and uses big things. But do we realize that God specializes in small things? If you heard this, pa this passage, here's 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what, was, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you get the picture? Who does God choose to use? Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Do you remember that this is the God who created the world out of a big bang? Giant explosion. No, he created the world out of nothing. Nothing. This word nothing may actually be one of God's favorite words. This is his specialty. From creation on, God has created beautiful things out of nothing. The problem here is Haggai saying these people are comparing rather than trusting. What did Solomon's temple have to do with God's new work? Is God trying to build another Solomon's temple? He didn't say that. Because they compared, they lost the understanding of the uniqueness of what God was doing through the... You can't understand the importance of what, is, what God is doing through you by comparing it with somebody else because every snowflake is different. Every part of your body is different. Every part of the body of Christ is different. Suppose your eye compared itself with your hand and said, I need to pray that God would give me a better grip and help me hold things more tightly. Can you imagine the stupidity of that? I mean, it hurts you to think about it. Your eye gripping? I <laughs> doesn't want to touch. Wants nothing near it. So your situation is new. No one has ever been down your path before. You can't look at Comparing these other things, you know, what was life like in Acts 2 when everybody was just happy about the Lord? What's happened today? Or what happened in the Great Awakening in America or Europe? Or what's happening in that church over there, you know? Ten years ago, they were ten people, and now there are 10,000. 
What's happening over there? So on. You can't make that kind of comparison. You get excited over the privileges God has given to you. Soon after I started pastoring Belcroft Bible Church, I started in 96, I think this is 98, I was teaching Sunday school in the church, teenagers. And we had, at that time, three. And they were boys. They were all boys, which is kind of strange. No girls, all boys. And they were all from the same family. And we sat on the platform of the church, me and three guys, and we had Sunday school class. And I don't know how many thousands of times I was tempted by the word nothing. You know? Why bother with these guys? Especially in the fact that an hour later I've got to preach to more people. Uh, I don't have time to do this. What's the value of this? So here we are 20 years later. Out of those three guys, they're all in full-time Christian ministry. Two of them are pastors. Nothing? Amazing. So Haggai gives a command. God gives a command through Haggai. And the command says, you give this your best effort. Here's verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Notice the three commands that are all strung together, all interconnected. The first command is repeated three times. Be strong, be strong, be strong. What does that mean, be strong? Do more exercises? No, he's actually saying, trust me and get to work. Strength comes from God as we commit ourselves to obedience. What happens when we conclude that our work is not significant? What happens is that our motivation dies. Our work ethic slides. We forget that if God can create beautiful things out of nothing, who cares how things begin? If God is in it, so this doesn't look like nothing, anything, who cares? The real question is, am I doing what God wants me to do? Then I should do it with all my heart. Second part of the command, work. The evidence that you've been strengthened by God is work. Quitting shows weakness. Haggai is obviously not talking about physical strength, but inner strength, spirit, the motivation from the heart. Don't let the word nothing slow down your efforts. Don't get a negative evaluation as to where all this is going. If this is God's will, join it and work. Go after it. Third one says, do not fear. End of verse 5. 
What is fear in this context? It's believing. It's believing the excuse. It's saying to yourself, this isn't worth it. This building's nothing. That's Satan's way of changing your heart. That's Satan's way of scaring you with words. I think that what Haggai is saying to these people is, pragmatism does not help one find God's will. Pragmatism does not help one find God's will. We've all grown up in a pragmatic environment. Everybody understand pragmatism? Pragmatism means that you treat something on the basis of its consequences, on the basis of the value you can see in it. We've learned to evaluate things by their benefit to us. We do things that promise to get us something. And we've been conditioned that way. It's the Minimax system. Where can I invest the minimum amount of work and get a maximum, a maximum amount of benefit? So with that kind of conditioning, it's hard to do something simply because God says, do it. Build this temple. God said so. In teaching in two colleges, three colleges for almost 50 years, pragmatism reigns in colleges. I don't know how many times I have been asked, why study at a Bible college? What job does that prepare me for? What career do I enter after graduation? You know? Or why do I need to take English? I'm not going to teach English. I grew up in English. I'm not going to become an author. Why well, take English? And it's sinking. That's it. That's pragmatism. That's pragmatic thinking. We're calculating its immediate usefulness. Why take public speaking when I'm only going to speak in public, in private? <laughs> that one didn't work. Why take public speaking when I'm only going to speak privately? If we can't immediately fix a price tag to it or see its value in our lives, we say, why bother? The problem comes when God wants us to do things that don't have clear price tags on them. For example, God says, I would like for you to invest time in poor people. Why? And widows. And orphans. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to spend some money on your enemies. I want you to spend time with your enemies. Why? They're not going to pay me back. Think of the Good Samaritan, a Samaritan helping a Jewish man who, if he was strong enough, would have spit at him. Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. It was a dangerous environment. He stopped to help, had recently been hit by thieves. The Jewish man couldn't, wouldn't pay him back, probably wouldn't even thank him. So why stop? There's nothing there. No, the Samaritan said, I will not only stop, I will give this man my best. He bound up the wounds, he put them on his transportation, he took them up to the inn, 
He paid the innkeeper. He could have said to the innkeeper, he's Jewish. He's your man. You pay for it. And he gave the innkeeper his credit card and said, when I come back, if it costs more, I'll pay for it. What is that? That's God's grace. You see that all through Scripture, where people will obey God even though it promises nothing. Prime example number one, Jesus Christ came to earth. While we were yet sinners, shaking our fist in his face and saying, get out of here, Christ died for us. Amen. So God wants us to get busy and not worry about it. He's saying, build this building through heaven. The third part of this message is the plan. God will make your work significant. Here are the reasons for the commands. Here are the facts behind what you see. Here are the parts that are so often overlooked. I'm reading verses 4 through 7. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all ye people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, said the Lord of hosts. What this section says is that the complaint of these people is based on a misunderstanding. It's in your eyes. It's the way you see it. It's appearance, and appearance does not give us reality. So what we have here are at least four facts that are stunning that are absolutely stunning. Four facts. Number one, significance is based on what God has set up. Verse five, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. God said, I made a covenant with you a thousand years ago when you came out of Egypt. And even though you were completely unfaithful to the covenant, I have been faithful to that covenant now for a thousand years. Shouldn't that encourage them to trust and obey him, to give him their all? Has God made a covenant with us? Yes, when we partake of communion, we celebrate the new covenant in his blood. Jesus said, I will build my church, and he wants us in it. And he wants us contributing to its development. So when you teach some minor, insignificant Sunday school class and you do it with all your heart, you are joining him in building his church. And he will make that effort significant. Still, even 2,000 years later, he is working on the basis of his covenant. Of Chapley's significance is based on God's presence. He said in verse 13 of chapter 1, I am with you, 
He said in verse 4, I am with you. He said in verse 5, My spirit is among you. Do not fear. The presence of God, the promise of God's presence means they have all the help they need. The promise of the Holy Spirit among them means they have all the strength and wisdom they need. They are now guaranteed of success. Guaranteed. God is saying, you just keep doing that and watch what I do. Work, because I'm with you. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 28. Make disciples of all nations. Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Have you noticed how that works? You say, I'm going to make disciples. So you go hand out a tract. And what happens? The person wads it up and throws it in the trash. What kind of making disciples is that? You know? You don't worry about that. Because Jesus said, I am with you. As you are in the process of sharing the gospel, of making the good news known, I am with you. I'm doing things that you'll find out someday are amazing. Amen? Pretty quiet today. And then he says, significance is based on what God is doing with leaders and nations. This is verses 6 and 7. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it's a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. They will come to the desire of all nations. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. When God says he will shake the nations and the heavens, he's not talking about an earthquake and volcanoes. He means that he's shaking up nations and he's rearranging leaders and kingdoms. Why? Because they are going to come to the desire of all nations and I will fill this temple with glory. What God is saying is I have a future plan to bring nations together. Where are they going to meet to worship and praise my name? In this thing you're building. That's why this building is so important. I have plans for this building in the future. All they have to do is get the place built. God will fill it with glory. They thought that the lack of gold, the lack of the Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah glory meant failure, worthlessness. They didn't understand that they were building this house for the one who sees all kingdoms in the world as a chessboard and can easily move around and change things. They didn't realize that Persia, under which they were operating, was short, shortly going to go down. You know, they were operating in the kingdom of Darius, Darius. Within 30 years, Darius attacked Greece. 490, the Battle of Marathon. What happened? Darius lost. Greeks still remember that day. And his successor, Xerxes, the one that Esther married in, in Esther, his successor, Xerxes, went after the Greeks again. This time he amassed a, mar a, a navy and an army of 2.6 million men. 2.6 million. 
Herodotus said that when they stopped to get a drink, they drank the river dry. How do you feed 2.6 million men? They went after Greece, and guess what? Ghost and Persia disappeared within 100 years. God is in the process of rearranging all of these things. Did you ever think about the fact that God may want to use your family and your contribution to his church, your example on your job internationally in distant places of the world to bring nations to himself? God's plans are so far beyond what we even think. And then, number four, significance is based on God's plans for the house. Here's verse 8. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Did you catch that statement? The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. That's God saying, I'm going to make this tool shed that you are working on more glorious than Solomon's temple. You thought that was the ultimate. You're working on the ultimate. It's going to become a place where nations assemble, where peace originates. It's going to become the international center of the world. It was about 550 years later that Messiah walked into this temple, now greatly expanded by Herod the king, and asked with a whip in his hand, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? And you have made it a den of thieves. These are just incredible statements. Incredible promises. I'm going to build my I'm going to fulfill my covenant. I am with you in this project. I intend to use this project internationally. And this house will have more glory than Solomon's temple. Who would want to quit when they knew these promises? These promises say you ought to give this your all because that's where the real money is. James Dobson writes, I have concluded that the accumulation of wealth, even if I could achieve it, is an insufficient reason for living. When I reach the end of my days, a moment or two from now, I must look backward on something more meaningful than the pursuit of houses and lands and machines and stocks and bonds. Nor is fame of any lasting benefit. I will consider my earthly existence to have been wasted unless I can recall a loving family, a consistent investment in the lives of people, and an earnest attempt to serve the God who made me. Nothing else makes much sense. Well stated. In 1921, a missionary couple named David and Svi Flood traveled from Sweden to the Belgian Congo in the heart of Africa. 
They joined another Scandinavian couple, the Eriksons, and felt God leading them to a remote village called Ndalra, where they could introduce the good news of Jesus Christ to a group of people who had never heard. The chief there wouldn't let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods, so they built their own mud huts half mile up a hill outside of town. They prayed and prepared for a spiritual breakthrough, but there was nothing. The only contact they had was village, with villagers was a young boy who came twice a day to sell eggs and chickens. Sfi talked to him, shared the gospel with him, and led him to Christ. Malaria attacked the little band of missionaries, and Sfi died 17 days after she gave birth to a daughter named Ina. That was enough for David, her husband. He dug a crude grave. He buried his 27-year-old wife. He handed his newborn da daughter, Ina, to the Ericsons and says, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife. Can't care for this baby. God has ruined everything. Within eight months, both of the Ericsons died of malaria. Within days of each other. In less than one year, the entire witness to the village of Indolora was wiped out. Ina, the baby, was turned over to some American missionaries who eventually brought her to the United States. They took the pastor to the church in South Dakota. Ina, whose name had been changed to Aggie, attended Bible college, met and married a man named Dewey Hurst, who became president of a Christian college in Seattle, Washington. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in Aggie's mailbox. She couldn't read it, but a picture in it stopped her cold. There in a primitive setting was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross were the words, Svea Flood. When she found someone to translate the article, it told of missionaries who had come to Ndolora long ago. The birth of a white baby, the death of the young mother, the one little African boy who'd been led to Christ, and how he had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. Gradually, he led all his students to Christ, and the children led the parents to Christ. Even the chief came to Christ. And today, there were more than 600 believers in that one village, all because of David and Sophia Flood. Soon, Aggie and her husband went on a vacation to Sweden to find her dad. Seventy-three years old now, David Flood had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He'd recently suffered a stroke, lived in bitterness. His one rule was, never mention the name of God, because God took everything from me. Aggie walked into his squalid apartment, littered with litter, liquor bottles, and approached the old man lying on a crumpled bed. Papa, she said. He turned and began to cry. Ina, he said, I never give you up. It's all right, Papa, she replied, hugging him gently. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened. The tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face to the wall, but Aggie continued, undaunted.
Papa, you didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you led to the Lord won the whole village to Jesus. The seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today, 600 Africans are serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God. Papa, Jesus loves you. He never hated you. The old man turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed, and by the end of the afternoon, David had come back to the Lord he had resented for so many decades. And that little boy, which Thea led to the Lord, later became the superintendent of the National Church of Belgium, Congo. Nothing? Not with our God. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Lord, would you encourage and strengthen us in the middle of situations that cause us to question significance? Would you help us to remember your promises? Help us to live in light of the fact that you want to be with us. We are not in this alone. That you provide strength, wisdom to the fullest. May we be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day. God bless you.